0: All political lives, unless they are cut off in midstream at a happy juncture, end in failure, because that is the nature of politics and of human affairs. Today, we are going to be asking that very question of the career of Nicola Sturgeon, First Minister of Scotland. Welcome back to Politips, the podcast that gives you all the tips on recent physical developments and general topics relating to the world of politics, the ideal podcast for any students of A-level politics or beyond. I'm joined again by our hosts, Johnny Langton and James hey, Welder, hey.
1: and I am Edwin Castell. Uh,
0: so Edwin Castell, let's go. Uh, not yet, James, but thank you. <laughs> I, I started with a really controversial politician, um, Enoch Powell. Very infamous controversial, but that's a story for another day. The reason I started that quote, though, is because that quote in his work on Joseph Chamberlain in 1977 is often used. You often hear it said, all political lives end in failure. And it's kind of one of the truisms of, of the world of politics. And I don't know if that always is true, or if that really is the case. But we're going to ask this of Nicola Sturgeon who handed in her resignation the 15th of February 2023 after a, a career starting in 2014 as first minister.
2: So Nicola Sturgeon was the first minister of Scotland. What is a first minister? So the first minister of Scotland... It's a bit like thinking of
0: them as a prime minister of Britain, the UK, but for Scotland. And this is a process that was set up by devolution in 1999. So before that time, all power was held um, by Westminster in London. So all politicians were essentially MPs in the the Houses of um, Commons and the Lords, and ministers would be drawn from that. Labour, when they came into power in 1997, set up this process of devolution where certain regions or countries such as Scotland, um, Wales, Northern Ireland would get much more say over their Affairs. So Scottish ministers, they're responsible for things like key policy areas as education, justice, health, aspects of the economy and social justice. Um, And they can also make appointments to certain officers and um, judges in Scotland. So essentially those areas that were controlled previously by Westminster are now controlled by Holyrood, which is the Scottish Parliament, and ministers drawn from that parliament in uh, Scotland. So they have... Total, say, or maybe not total, as we'll come on to, but they have control over those areas, democratically elected from elections that just draw from Scotland. And the first minister is the most important of those politicians. Um, so, Ed, um, how
1: did Nicola Sturgeon get into power?
0: Well, if we go back to the history again of the first minister, the first three first ministers that that they ever had after 1998 1990- were all Labour politicians. And that's because when Labour set up the process of devolution, they thought, well, we control Westminster anyway in in London, but also we dominate um, politics in Scotland and in Wales and other areas. Um, And historically, Labour had been extremely strong. The SNP, the Scottish National Party, which is the party of Nicola Sturgeon, was a much more minor affair. What happened that was surprising, though, um, and took everyone by surprise, and Labour probably never predicted was that Alex Salmond, the leader of the SNP, won an election for the SNP um, from 2007, and so they won the the election first as like a minority government, meaning they didn't have quite an overall majority of seats within Holyrood, but enough that you know by far the biggest party, I could form a government. So Alex Salmond took over, and it, uh, under his leadership. Nicola Sturgeon was seen as his, essentially his successor and it's under the Salmon days that we had the independence referendum of 2014 and that is the context for Nicola Sturgeon taking over. So in 2014 there was an independence referendum granted by the David Cameron's government in Westminster in London, um, whereby there would be a referendum held in Scotland over the issue about whether Scotland should become an independent country. Now in that referendum Referendum, the union side, the in other words, stay within the UK side won. Um, I think it was 45 mm-hmm. voted in favour of independence and 55 in um, in, in favour of staying within the union. And at that point, having taken the independence movement, which is the the central policy of the Scottish National Party in Scotland, which is they want Scotland to not have devolution, which means certain powers given by the UK government to Scotland, but to have total independence. In other words, Scotland becoming a different country to the rest of the United Kingdom. Alex Salmon had taken that as, as far as it ever got to, but ultimately didn't win that referendum. He chose at that moment to resign, and Nicola Sturgeon was by far the dominant within that political party and she took over at that point
2: okay so she takes over in 2014 straight after the failed independence referendum what's the point of the SNP now because surely they are just forever in the doldrums like the conservatives like to say constantly it was a once in a generation vote so nicola sturgeon turns up on monday morning first day on the job Uh, what do you do how successful was she
0: she was extremely successful electorally, and that's something that maybe we'll come on to um, in, in a bit. But essentially, there's a difference between um, Scots voting uh, um, for independence uh, and voting on that basis, but also voting against what was a Conservative-dominated government in, in London, and the Conservatives were not popular in Scotland, um, since the days of Thatcher, really, although that did change a little bit under Nicholas Sturgeon. Okay, so the the, the Conservatives were beginning again to increase their popularity, but many, many people in Scotland would vote against. That essentially, and the SNP was seen as the natural party, or became under Nicola Sturgeon the natural party of government in Scotland, and really dominated. And the statistics are very impressive. In 2015, so this is for the Westminster election. So the the MPs in Scotland, so there's nothing to do with Holyrood and, and devolution, just as part of the United Kingdom. Um, the SNP put, poured their candidates in 2015. They won 56 out of the 59
2: Scottish um, seats. Why do you think they won so heavily? Do you think that was the Scottish people almost feeling guilty for not voting for independence, or is that far too simplistic and wrong?
0: On that point, I would say... In, in some ways, what what the SNP really have going for them is that the percentage of the Scottish electorate who feel very passionately about independence, you know, and that could hover between, I mean, it's normally around 40 odd percent of, of the of the, um, the population, that is the natural party for them to, to vote. Yeah. Because if that's yeah. a single issue, I want independence, yeah, so yeah, I yeah, will yeah. vote yeah. for the SNP. But equally, many voters who maybe are either ambivalent or don't want independence at all, but can feel, well, after 2014, that that was resolved for now. But they do care about um, funding for Scotland and they do want a party that will put Scottish interests first and get as much for Scotland as possible within that devolution context and therefore would give the SNP the vote. And what happened really under the, the, the trend that started before Nicola Sturgeon, but then was really reinforced under her leadership, is that whereas before sometimes um, Scottish voters would vote for the SNP in some of the Holyrood elections but then in general elections go back to voting for labor which would been the traditional party of, of Scotland really that, that dominates the politics by 2015 that vote that labor vote collapsed completely and um, many people in Scotland voted for both the Holyrood elections the devolved elections and the UK parliament elections so you've got 2015 56 out of 59 seats 2017 Um, a bit of a a 35 out of 59. So it does go down. And then by 2019 um, general election, back up to 48 out of 59 seats. So that's the UK Parliament elections. If we look at the Holyrood elections, um, in 2016, the SNP had 63 um, seats, Uh, the Conservatives 31. So here, this is where actually, interestingly, Labour was replaced by the Conservatives, as the second party within Scotland as the opposition, under a very charismatic um, leadership of uh, Ruth Davidson. Uh, by 2021, well, the SNP again got 63 seats out of um, 129 and were in coalition with eight Green SNPs as well, with Conservatives um, on 31 again.
1: I absolutely agree, Ed. I think it, it was really impressive um, how, under Nicola Sturgeon's leadership, um, the SNP became the third biggest party in the UK Parliament. And you know, every week there, seeing the SNP being able to ask questions at Prime Minister's Questions, mm. having like two or three questions, you know, um, about that single issue, really. And I, I found that very impressive under under, under Nicola Sturgeon. Um, I just wonder, though, Ed. Um, you know, in terms of yeah, she's a great. Um, election winning leader i just wonder what her impact has been in terms of the um the campaign for independence and whether you think it's improved the campaign for independence do you think she's taken it taken it further and and improved it than what it was under alex
0: salmond well here we're coming on to really how successful was she you know at 52 years of age she is resigning at a moment of our own choosing, and we'll come on to those reasons in a moment, as absolutely the head of the dominant party in Scottish politics. She's been first minister since 2014, and in terms of polling, consistently has support of around 45% of the electorate, which is very sizable in, in sort of UK parliamentary terms. If you get 45% consistently voting for you, you, you dominate the government and dominate the, the elections. She has like really excellent presentation Abilities, and she had the ability. It seems to seem to voters like she's a typical Scot, you know, a, a typical person. So her parents, for example, were aspirational working class who then bought their own council home. Um, she and her sister were the first in their families to go to university, uh, and she had that ability to really connect with voters as like an ordinary person who maybe understood their concerns. And her excess extraordinary in that she had the ability to sell out stadiums at the height of her popularity, which few pop. politicians do. There is maybe a parallel here with Jeremy Corbyn um, and his uh, Glastonbury a uh, mm. bit where he was a- where he was able. I was in to the crowd. The crowd. Yeah, so, yeah. so, talk to us about that yeah, moment, James. Um,
1: yeah, just it was quite extraordinary to to see. It was on the Pyramid Stage, the the, the main uh, the main stage at Glastonbury, and he came on like a rock star. And you know, so many you know it was packed out with so many young people, thousands of young people. Um, and you know, other acts were playing at this time. You know, other performers were playing at this time. But everyone came to to hear Corbyn. I mean, he did come out with a sheet of paper, though, to read a speech, which I I, I didn't particularly like. But, uh, you know, I thought he could remember the speech. But um, but overall, it was just incredible to see, you know, a
0: politician come out there and basically headline Glastonbury. And there is, of course, here a real difference, because although Corbyn was able to enthuse certainly that crowd at that time and seem a little bit different, the difference with Nicola Sturgis is actually in government and did that as a national leader and and as first minister. So if we look through some of um, what she actually did maybe as a politician and therefore um, how successful, there are two parallel things going on here. How successfully did she govern and what was a success within Scotland domestically? And what did she do for the cause of independence? Because if we're going to look at ultimately is she a success or a failure, because she's an SNP leader, the prism of did she achieve independence, yes or no, is ultimately going to be what she is judged against, perhaps. But let's first of all maybe look at her sort of domestic success. I mean, she pioneered a kind of, I guess, liberal populism, you could argue. So she made Scotland seem. A bit like it's a Europhile socially democratic system on a maybe almost a Scandinavian model. One of her policies she did is she established a new Scottish social security service um, and created um, a Scottish child payment offered to poorer families. Very kind of social democratic policy, which you know she could be justifiably proud of. She was very, very successful in terms of her stable and unflashy leadership during the covid pandemic people often compared her favorably to say the conservative leadership in in westminster now in terms of outcomes There was actually very little difference. In terms of policy, there was often very little difference. But what she was able to do was tailor it to her Scottish audience, make sure it was a little bit different to the rest of the UK in terms of the COVID measures and give a very calm, reassuring communication presence that many Scots really did buy into um, at the time. So some of the things that have been used to to measure success, first of all, education within Scotland. Now here, she promised to lower inequality within education um, between some of the a poorest in society in general they're probably a bit of a mixed success, well in fact not much success because the inequality hasn't um, contracted. In fact, Scotland has fallen behind England in terms of the PISA rankings, which look internationally at like maths and English uh, in terms of educational um, outcomes. The NHS is also um, struggling, as it is elsewhere in the UK, obviously, after the COVID pandemic, but you know, it doesn't stand out as being particularly successfully run, say, compared to other parts of the other country. There have also been some issues over um, ferry contracts being massively over budget. So some new ferries are linked to some of the um, islands within scotland have um, really gone over budget uh, there were also some of the funding of the smp so there were some question marks over smp funding so six hundred thousand pounds of um, party spending that was earmarked for indy ref2 so the second campaign have gone missing, disappeared. Now, there's nothing, no indication that Nicola Sturgeon has done the wrongdoing necessarily here, but it's still a question mark o- over the party finances. Her own husband, uh, Peter Murrell, who um, is the chief executive of the SNP, there are some question marks over a loan he made to the party of £100,000 for his own personal finances. So, certain policies, mixed success, mi- mixed record. We can kind of see what she was trying to position Scotland as.
1: So, Ed, um, that's that's some great analysis there um, on some of the the more domestic issues in Scotland. Um, But would you say she's ultimately failed then because, you know, Scotland are still part of the United Kingdom? You know,
0: what's her impact been specifically on the independence issue? When she took over in 2014, the independence referendum had basically resolved the issue. What changed everything is Brexit in 2016. Because what the SNP position was under her leadership was that they wouldn't campaign for another referendum until the point that something materially changed that meant that the time was was then right for another referendum. For example, indep- support for independence in the polls really increased or something happened against Scotland's will. Well, what Nicola Sturgeon argued at is that the EU referendum was that very occasion because Scotland as a population voted to remain in the EU whereas the population of the UK as a whole voted to to leave and therefore she could argue that Scotland was being taken out of Europe against its will and therefore the time was now right for another independence referendum. How successful was she though? This is where there was a problem for her because essentially she came up against the brick wall of a conservative government. doesn't matter if it was Theresa May Boris Johnson, or more recently Rishi Sunak, the policy of the Conservative government in the United Kingdom is that an independence referendum can only be offered by um, by London, uh, by the Westminster Parliament. And the reason for that is this process of devolution. So certain things are handed out to Scotland, but some things are reserved for the Westminster Parliament. And Areas such as constitutional questions, as should Scotland be an independent country, is supposed to be reserved for London. And the answer of May, Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak is no. No, you can't have another independence referendum.
2: What about Liz? She didn't return a call, did she? <laughs> uh, Liz, she's Trust gone did, by that point. <laughs>
0: yes, Liz Trust. I mean, she was the one who who said that she was going to ignore. Yeah. I think Nicola Sturgeon. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so not a, not a so great constructive uh, relationship at all. Um, sorry, uh, m- my apologies to all the Liz Trust fans um, out there. How how could Don't I worry, overlook not
2: her glorious
0: <laughs> her glorious few weeks in power? She had to show really because her primary thing that she wants really as a politician is is probably independence and that there are many within the party of the SNP this is really what they want so what she first of all tried to do is to say well does Holyrood have the power does the Scottish government have the power to call a referendum themselves well in November 2022 the Supreme Court Um, ruled, so so which is the Supreme Court for both Scotland and England, uh, ruled the Scottish Parliament could not unilaterally legislate for an independence referendum. Okay, So they, they gave a clear legal outcome. No, you can't. Only the Westminster Parliament, only the UK government can do that. So then she introduced another policy, and she said that the next general election should be a de facto referendum. So what she meant by that is if 50% of voters voted for SNP or nationalist parties, she would begin exit talks with the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, essentially to say, right, that is our justification for, for leaving. And there was supposed to be a conference Um, in March, this month, for members to decide whether to adopt this policy as official party policy. The thing is, though, and this is one of the factors maybe behind her her resignation, is that there was huge internal opposition to this policy. So, for example, Stuart Macdonald, a former defence spokesman, and who was very much a Sturgeon loyalist, published a paper saying that the policy would damage the independence movement's international credibility. Because Ultimately, what legal basis would that have? A general election that is run on multiple issues being used as de facto referendum. And really for Nicola Sturgeon, I think that was the end of her road for that was her last attempt at resolving this conundrum of what do you do about independence if the party in Westminster says no to it? Just to add on to that, Ed, especially now,
1: as quite likely there will be a a sizable Labour majority in the next election. And, you know, Nicola Sturgeon was probably holding out the hope that it would be a a minority Labour government. She would have been able to, like, persuade them to come in some sort of coalition if they agree to giving her a referendum. And that hope is kind of probably now gone. I don't know if you'd agree with that now, Ed. And perhaps her kind of uh, her, you know, her chances are running out.
0: And yeah, and she's had to resign. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't get too excited straight away. A a couple of years, I I know you have skin in the game in this one, and are eagerly awaiting your banners and um, hoping to maybe be called to Parliament yourself here. But what I would, uh, because there is still a lot that could change, and it's not out of the question politically that you could see a scenario where Labour doesn't quite get a, a majority um, w- within Westminster and therefore would have to open up negotiations, say, with the SNP. Whether or not Keir Starmer, though, would be open to that kind of thing is another huge question. So I, I'm not sure he would. I mean, what is ultimately that the problem the SNP have is neither Labour or the Conservatives want to be the party or mm, want to be the, go yep, and the Prime Minister who, who lose um, Scotland. And that is potentially
2: an issue. So... You never know in politics, though. So an independent Scotland looks further away for the SNP, but she's surely still got quite a lot of political stock. She's won 48 seats in Westminster in 2019. She's maintained, what, 63 seats in Holyrood. Is that that the only reason that she's resigned, or were, were there other factors... The only other policy that is mentioned
0: as a potential reason for a dip in her popularity before her resignation was the gender recognition bill. Now, this was a bill that had been debated at length by the Holyrood uh, Parliament in, in Scotland and uh, championed by Nicola Sturgeon. And It's very clear that she really did believe in this uh, and um, felt quite passionately about this issue and what that bill does or, or did was make it easier for anyone aged 16 or over to ch- change their legal gender without having to go through a medicalized process. What then happened though was that the Westminster government said that this went against equality legislation that applied to the whole of the United Kingdom so they vetoed it. There is a provision within devolution that hadn't been used up until this point where the Westminster government can essentially overrule what a devolved administration does if they think it goes against a law that applies to the whole of the United Kingdom. And and that is what They did. So the Scottish Secretary in Westminster legally formally vetoed the bill. And what Nicola Sturgeon said is that this was him behaving like, quote, a governor general. In other words, Mm -hmm. what she's implying is that this is the Westminster Parliament um, behaving like a colonial power and a colonial authority over Scotland. And in some ways, you you think, well, this might be a great example for her to use of, you know, Scotland not getting its way and also um, having a colonial. relationship with London and really reinforces Nicola's uh, point. The the issue she had um, is that around 65% of the Scottish voters, according to polling, actually opposed the bill, including potentially majority of SNP voters. So she was unfortunately getting an issue where that wasn't maybe that popular with voters with which to actually have a constitutional fight with West, Westminster. And it led to maybe a slight dip in SNP polling um, as a result of that and also as um, disquiet over her independence movement. So again, m- potentially a factor. However, even if that is the case and there was a dip in SNP polling, no one was clamouring for her to, to resign over that issue or at that point. And it seems really that it's potentially she was resigning um, at a moment of her own choosing. And actually, can you think of many wow. politicians who do that? Yeah. Jacinda Ardern? Right. Well, Jacinda Ardern. So
2: she has been compared to that. So talk to me about Jacinda, Johnny. I believe she's resigned um, of her own volition because of, of the stresses of the job and perhaps even linked to some, some abuse that she might have received and how that might have eventually worn her down to the point of not, not wanting to, to rule anymore. And many observers thought
0: that uh, Nicola Sturgeon did model herself or was inspired by Jacinda Ardern, another, I guess, socially democratic type politician who very popular internationally had a very high profile maybe at the same point that she was resigning was beginning domestically to have some troubles my understanding in in New Zealand but still decided rather than contest the next election to to resign before it and definitely went down citing the toll of being a top and actually let's face it a female politician in such a high-profile job and getting some of the flack and it's maybe interesting to to see some of the words that um, Nicola Sturgeon used I think it echoes what happened there so I mean she said in her resignation speech and uh, and I'm certainly not going to try this in a Scottish accent you'll be relieved to hear um, in my head and my heart I know that time is now but it's right for me for my party and for the country and so today I'm announcing my intention to step down as first minister and leader of my party a first minister is never off duty particularly in this day and age there's virtually no privacy Ordinary stuff that most people take for granted, like going for a coffee with friends or for a walk on your own, becomes very difficult. And the nature and form of modern political discourse means there is much greater intensity, dare I say it, brutality, to life as a politician than in years gone by. And I think... That is quite powerful, actually, on a really human powerful. level, isn't yeah, it? Because really, really. Don't, don't get me wrong, many of her detractors say she's a very tribal politician. That she gave as got as she, you know, she gave as uh, as much as, as she, she got. got. Yeah. yeah, that's that's the phrase. Thank you. Um, <laughs> it's a Friday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, so, so there's no doubt that some would say that she herself could be a very tribal politician. And and yeah, I think these are very powerful words, really, of saying how the toll that politics can take on individuals. And it seems that she reached her decision after attending a funeral for um, Alan Angus like a big uh, SNP stalwart and then she consulted some of the key people around her so John Swinney the um, Deputy First Minister and Keith Brown Deputy Leader of the SNP so she talked to them first she then made phone calls to Cabinet Ministers Um, sometimes her aides had to apparently make the calls because she was like breaking down in tears Mm -hmm. Um, in every case for every minister she spoke to essentially she had to answer the, the same question is there anything I can do to change your mind and she said uh, no she'd earned the right to call her own time in office Um, and you know you can contrast that with Theresa May Liz Truss Boris Boris Johnson who very much um, I suppose Gordon Brown who very much did not call their own call their own times in office and even with say tony blair you get you get the feeling that he really would have liked to stayed on if possible so this is a politician said no no the time is now she did so apparently the the only thing that would change her mind was if someone was to remind her that she would owe douglas ross the conservative leader 50 pounds on a bet on who would stay the longest in post (laughs) so apparently that that bet was made and she she now owes in 50 50 pounds but um by all accounts, a decision was made on consultation with her family over the press of the job. Um, she'd post a lot of pictures, apparently, in recent days beforehand about pictures in the highlands, such as the Pentland Hills outside Edinburgh. So clearly she'd been for walks, thinking of her future. I think a reminder that politicians are humans, that they have huge pressures, that sometimes they need the space, and, and things like family is actually important. Uh, and clearly this was maybe the main factor for
2: Nicola Sturgeon. Quite refreshing, isn't it, to hear a politician go out on those terms? Who's replacing her? Because I hear that these candidates stepping up are not like for like.
0: They certainly aren't. There are, as I understand it, three main contenders at the moment Kate Forbes, Ash Regan, and uh, Humza Youssef. So, three very different uh, politicians. Kate Forbes, she was seen as, in many ways, the front runner, including by Nicola Sturgeon. So, st- Nicola Sturgeon has been heard as saying that out of all the ministers in scotland kate forbes is by far the most able okay an impressive politician you know she's only 32 so it's relatively young um just returning from maternity leave um she had become finance secretary i mean she was deputy finance minister but her finance minister derek uh, mckay had had to resign with a few hours notice and she had to step up to give the 2020 scottish budget and did a pretty good job of it Um, what is interesting though with um, Kate Forbes and what a lot of the press tension has been on is that she's also a member of the Free Church of Scotland. So she's essentially an evangelical christian because that church has a very strict interpretation of the bible she's been on record as saying she would not have supported gay marriage in 2014 when it was voted on by the Holyrood parliament and that has meant that some of her supporters who were ministers have then withdrawn their support which i think is actually a fascinating question really over belief and how it plays into politics does that remind you of anyone else within
1: yeah i was gonna say tim farron and the lib dems yeah, what happened there, James? Didn't, uh, Tim Farron, wasn't he asked how whether he believes in abortion and gay marriage, but his Christian values? I don't actually
0: think he fully necessarily answered the question. No, no. But the, was, the issue yeah. was that journalists would just keep asking it. And it became, in other words, an issue that, or, or an area of interest that people wanted to, to know about now what Kate Forbes is saying is don't listen to the Twitter storms don't listen to people on social media who will be very much saying she can't be a politician because her view is that you know this is her matter of private conscience she's not saying at all that she would undo that legislation or not support equality legislation or do any other sort it's just that she takes a private moral stance on it but then there are some who argue that private moral stance for a politician is still important in determining what politicians are, are there to to do and the support they would give legislation. And that is exactly what one of her rivals, uh, Hamza Youssef, has, has said, is that under her leadership, the equality legislation would not be safe. And he is another contender. So he's like the transport minister, um, Europe minister and justice secretary, so very experienced uh, minister, I guess, within there. And he might be seen as a bit of a continuity candidate, um, especially on things like gender recognition bill, where he has said he will go and, and fight Westminster o- over that issue. And then the only other candidate I know is um, that is considered a front runner is um, Ash uh, Regan, SMP SNP for Edinburgh Eastern Um who was actually someone who had quit over the gender reform legislation? Yeah. Um, and she is a but she has prominent supporters in the legal industry. So um, she also supports the idea of a de facto referendum idea. So interesting, I say the two big issues that Nicola Sturgeon maybe haven't fully resolved, which is what do the SNP do about independence referendum? And what do the SNP now do about the Gender Recognition Act that has been vetoed by Parliament are going to be issues that are of debate um within these next three candidates.
1: Um yeah, so thanks for that, Ed. And we'll have to uh keep a, a keen eye on the um upcoming elections in Scotland um, and who will replace Nicola Sturgeon. And it'll be fascinating to see the aftermath of that and the impact of a SNP and a Scotland without Nicola Sturgeon big
0: shoes to fill very big shoes to to fill well thank you very much you have been listening to politics you can follow us on social media platforms including twitter facebook and instagram on politics podcast or at politics podcast i'm going to turn to my our producer johnny politics podcast and that's for facebook instagram and Twitter. send us your questions Thank you very much for listening. This has been a St. Bart's Politics Department production.
1: Let's
0: get up (laughs) here.
2: Oh.